is Clayton Howe's Entertainment X. For part two with Hunter Arnold, we continue the conversation on leadership, taste, and failures. So I hope you enjoy this part two with Hunter Arnold. How has your leadership style evolved from early lead producing to maybe even now with the chicken and biscuits? It sounds very much like it's just education. <laughs> or do you let people bring questions to you? You pose these questions before they even think of them. I, you know, I think that, that when I started this work, I felt like to be a leader, you had to always be the smartest person in the room. And if you fast forwarded today, um, I wouldn't say my goal is to be the dumbest person in the room, but pretty <laughs> close, pretty close. I, I think real leadership comes when what you do is you assemble a team where every member of the team is better at their specialty than you could ever be. And you let them do what they're best at and you get problems out of their way. You take threats off the board for them. Uh, you know, you give them the support that you need. You know, a huge part of being a, a producer, at least a creative producer, I, I suppose maybe there, maybe if you were just a business side producer, this isn't as important, is help bolstering artist confidence, right? Like creative, those of us that have any creative bone in our body can be full of self-doubt. Oh, or you can be so immersed in a project that you lose visibility. You don't have any real perspective anymore. So a huge part of the problem is like, being, yeah, sure. I mean, I think people think of it as like, well, so you need to give notes on what's not working. And like, no, you also need to give notes on what is. Mm. You also you need to get a lot of reminders about when something's incredible, but in a way that doesn't let somebody become overconfident and they keep doing the work. So it is as much about sort of personality and emotional management as it is business, business plan management. Right. Um, so to me, it's like, I never, I never, it's so comfortable to hire someone that you're smarter and better than because you don't get questioned and not getting questioned is the worst possible thing for the output. So hire people that are way better than you. And all you are is a sounding board and an, an orchestrator. How has your, how has your taste evolved over time? Taste in pieces, taste in, I guess, people, uh, is there anything that comes to mind? Um, in pieces, no, because I, I really, it's back to the thing I, the, the description I give about Anastasia, like right. I, there are things I can't find something to love about and then I don't do them. Yeah. But what, but what I love is can my taste is so diverse that that really hasn't changed much. Uh, uh I, I would say that like my, my taste in people absolutely has changed a lot. Mm. Um, the older I get, I just can't tolerate anyone who doesn't lead with kindness. Mm. Um, I, cruelty is very difficult for me. Mm. Um, I understand that most people that are mean or pushy or yellers or whatever, like I understand it all comes from insecurity and pain. So I can, I can sympathize with it. I can, I can say like, oh, I get it. You're a bully because you don't know, like you don't know how people would perceive you if you didn't come in over the top or like, I, I can have empathy for it, um, but, but I can't be around it. Uh, like I really need people that that root for other people. So even competitiveness to me is very like it has to be a very specific kind of competitiveness. Yeah. Somebody who's like, I want to crush you on your best day is very different than someone that's like, I want to crush you in this race and I hope you turn an ankle. 
they're just not the same, right? right. Like A is act A can be done like where at the end of the race, if you did win, that person is going to hug you and pat you on the back and be proud. And they know they gave their all. I like that person. Mm-hmm. I don't like somebody that's like, I don't really care if I win or I lose. Like you're not going to get to that level if you're if you like that. <laughs> But there are a lot of people that would be willing to win under any under any cost. And like that, to me, I just can't do it as I get older. You learn to spot those people real fast. You know, you're bringing up a good point about winning, right? And how much you can learn from winning. But you can almost learn, and I'm sure you've heard this before, learn more from failing. Do you have any particular favorite failures or apparent failures that set you up for success? Like show specific? Uh, yeah, shows or life. I mean, really, whatever comes to the front of mind first. I mean, I think it depends on... Uh, I look at failure not as an outside term. Meaning, like, for example, I wouldn't define failure or success by whether a show recouped or not. And I wouldn't define failure or success, or success by whether it won an award or lost an award. Like, that. that that's not... I define failure as, like, I didn't achieve what I, what the primary goal I set out to was, um, within that context, the, 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 the one thing that really jumps out to me is on I think it's the second time I mentioned is like Jeff West spring awakening to me yeah. was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. I mean, my, Michael Arden is as close to a muse as I'll probably be lucky enough to get in my professional life. I mean, he could come, he could pitch me almost any idea and often does. And usually they sound like they make no sense. Like I remember his first description of Once on this Island, the revival of Once on this Island was, I want to do Once on this Island, but like in a parking lot with like naked, dirty children and starving dogs. And I was like, it sounds to me like you need a nap. And then like, you know, but, but the truth is like, that's very, really close to what we did. Right. Which right. was like this deeply environmental thing. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so with Michael, like I have learned that if he sees something, it's just going to take me longer to see it. But that means I need to, I need to help him keep seeing it and keep working on it. Death was spring awakening, which was some, I can't even remember what it was like 70 days or something that we transferred it. Like there was one window to either make it happen or not make it happen way way faster than anyone should have ever tried to do it Um, you know the point of that show was to show the world that limitations are perceived and that i think Hmm. we achieved with the art like i think that that was like a mind like to me i loved the original production i love the people that produced the original production i love most of the people in the original production But to me, this idea, to me, principally that that story is about like the miscommunications between adults and children. And that like, you know, when you're in high school and you get broken up with, in that moment, you really believe that it's, that you will never not hurt from it, that the world is over. And right, and it's that kind of pain, not necessarily just from a breakup, but it's that pain that an adult doesn't experience. Because by the time you make it to adulthood, you realize that stuff is impermanent. You realize you'll eventually feel better. But at 15 or 13, like this is why there is teen suicide. If adults could actually clock the pain the kids were in and intervene, there would be no child suicide. There would be no teen suicide. just wouldn't exist. And so the idea of seeing Spring Awakening, which very much is dealing with those themes, 
And literally the characters couldn't communicate because some were hearing and some were dead. Like that to me was a mind blowing, beautiful package to wrap that in. So artistically we achieved our goal, but the simple fact that I wasn't able to get that, and I'm not talking about economically, that I wasn't able to get that theater full every night. I mean, Spring Awakening, even though it won the Tony, it had a tough run the original time. I mean, it was a, it's a hard sell, right? You're trying to sell a rock musical about kids killing themselves and having sex to 55-year-old white females from the Upper East Side. Like, it's not exactly a home run of a marketing piece. No, no. Then, then you add the Death West component in on top of it, it becomes even harder to explain. Like, people are like, what do you mean a death musical? Like, what, right. explain what that even means to me. And so we did not get the job done because I'm making it up. But let's let's say I had 8,000 slots a week times 14 weeks of that show. Every seat that went dead was a heart and mind that I didn't get a chance to let Michael move. That's a huge failure. Uh, sorry, makes me emotional to just say it. Um, that's a huge failure for a producer. You know, um, People don't give their lives and their time and their heart and their money on a story that they don't want to impact other humans. And so, you know, we printed our entire New York Times review. Not one, not, we, we, no excerpts. That's how good that review was. And I still couldn't get bodies in there. And that means I failed to crack the communication code. I didn't figure out how to educate the audience in a way that made them want to see it. Um, what I learned from that was never underestimate how hard it is to accurately explain things and to quickly and aggressively find your demographic. Hindsight, looking back on it, is there lessons you take away that you could have done? Or is it just one of those, a a piece of time, like it had to be done in a different time? No, I mean, you know, one of the lessons that I learned from that, frankly, in a very weird way, is probably a huge part of Hadestown's success, right? and that lesson was I would go watch Spring Awakening, the Death West version, my, the, my revival of it. And um, the people who were absolutely shattered by it were always sub 35, urban, open-minded, right? Mm-hmm. Um, many of them also, by the way, saw it because it was on at TKTS, right? Mm-hmm. So like, like that, that's a reality. Like they came because they recognized Spring Awakening and it was cheaper than going to whatever else. I don't remember what was in those, the, that season with us. Sure. Um, so when we were producing Hainstown, you know, we'd had the, it, we'd had three productions before we went to Broadway. It was at New York Theatre Workshop. It was in Edmonton, Canada, and it was at the National in London. And it was very clear that all of the people who were really moved by, because it's, it's a very non-traditional musical. I mean, there's like, yes, it's narrative. And yes, there's book work but it's basically an operetta and, yeah. and it's, it doesn't, it doesn't follow a completely linear path at all times. Right. And it's deeply metaphorical, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, so it's not necessarily like dead center of the road uh, content. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People that were moved by it were all the same demographic. It was like sub 35, you know, in this, in that case, it was like, I hate to use this term because it's not really fair. It's just, I'm using it as a broad brush, but like, more of the hipster indie music variety. Um, now the prevailing wisdom on Broadway is you can't support a show with that demographic because they don't buy full price tickets and they won't buy premium tickets. And I hate that rumor. 
And it's a pervasive, pervasive rumor in the space. Well, yeah, but you can't run a show on 30 year olds. You can't run a show on 19 year olds. I understand that most 19 year olds have less disposable income than most 55 year olds. I totally get and accept that as a fact. Yeah. Go to a Beyonce concert and tell me what they're paying per ticket. Cause that concert's full. The reason that those people don't come to Broadway is we've never delivered content they thought was worth it and, and welcomed them and positioned them as the audience we actually want in our houses. So when we were doing Town, and we'd had the great benefit of getting to watch audiences around the world, honestly, and really, you know, we did three different countries out of town um, or developmental, I guess New York's not out of town from at the workshop, <laughs> was, was like, listen, if we put the typical Broadway audience member into that audience during previews, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not sure. Maybe they'll love it, uh -huh. but it's a huge risk. Maybe just like with Depot Spring Awakening, they won't understand what the hell it is. Mm. And that's a huge problem. But if I know that I can get music forward, hip, experiential, experimental, 35 and unders, diverse, into this theater, I know exactly what will happen. And if, and if they become obsessed with it mm -hmm. and it's full, everyone else will wonder what the hell is happening and, and why they don't know about it. That's just how the human mind works, right? It's the ultimate FOMO thing. It's like, wait, mm -hmm. all the cool kids like this thing and I've never heard of it. So I, I guess I gotta go see it. Like I, I'm still convinced today, to give you an example, yeah that probably a third of the audience every night at Hamilton doesn't actually like it or get it. Not because it's not brilliant, but because it's way out of most people's wheelhouse. Right. However, it got branded as vital art. For the American and, story, yeah. <laughs> and so everybody that goes to that thing, and by the way, you're yeah. paying $500 to see it probably. Yeah. So you, you're not, you can't even accept the idea that you didn't enjoy it because it, that would be insane. Right. So it's like, it's like if you create the reputation, the magnet works. Mm -hmm. But again, prevailing wisdom is, but if you build the show like that, you're never going to be able to gross more than 650 and you're going to run 20 weeks. Mm -hmm. I, the Spring Awakening experience taught me that's not true. Mm -hmm. Watching, you know, watching how that younger demographic spends its money, it is based on value and it is based on exchange. They don't want to be anywhere they're not welcome and wanted. And they expect what they see to be their type of entertainment and really, really good. Mm. But if you deliver that, if you're Adele or you're Beyonce, sure. like you're going to, they'll pay, they will literally not eat for a week yep. to come see that thing. Yep. And I would never have had that strategy. I mean, obviously my partners and I come up with strategies together. So it's not like it was all my idea, but I don't think I ever would have seen that mm. had I not had so much pain on spring awakening. Mm. A quick question before we change gears, because you brought up a really good point on the accessibility and having that demographic, that age demographic, feel welcomed to Broadway and live theater. What have you discovered is, well, I guess works. Is it a, a song? Is it having a strong album? Is it really just the marketing of it and how you show that demographic? Oh, you're you're welcome here. You know what? It, how, is it taking the approach of like, you know, the way Beyonce might, you know, market her stuff? 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, you, you just hit the nail on the head. The, okay. the, the metaphor that I always use when I think about demographics, right, hmm. is let's say I decide to take an exchange student in from Russia, right? They're going to come live with me for a semester. Sure. And I like make a beautiful bedroom and, you know, a welcome home sign. I do all of these things to make someone feel welcome, right? They're going to walk in my house. And they may be like, this guy's really, really nice. He's really, really kind. Mm. They still can't communicate with me. However, if I can't afford a welcome home sign, if they have to sleep in a spare bedroom on a cot, and I spend six weeks learning rudimentary Russian, I bet they feel a lot more welcomed. If I learn three things to cook that they might eat at home, I bet it's going to take that anxiety way down. Mm. So I, you know, metaphorically and literally, I've learned to speak to people in their own language. So like, when you're looking at an ad spend on something like Town, normally, and by the way, we do now because then we want a Tony Award. And once you win a Tony Award, now you're, a, now you're a mass market show and now you're a tourist show and all these other things. Oh, yeah. But we weren't any of that. We were not a presumed hit at all mm -hmm. when we came in. So I'm like, if I want to, you know, communicate to music avids that are under 35, how do they get communicated with? And the answer is it's not with taxi tops. It's not with Times Square billboards. It's with like crazy, beautiful, artful, wild postings on all the walls of places in Brooklyn and like spray paint uh, on the sidewalk that has a URL that's cryptic on it. It's like now most Broadway producers would be like, but what if I spend my money on that shit and it doesn't work? Like mm -hmm. the way I approach it is like, but I'm, I know it's not going to work the other way. I know it's not going to work the other way. So yes, yeah. it might be a ludicrous idea to spend $100,000 on wild postings and not one of them in Manhattan. Most people thought that was batshit. Right. But at the end of the day, that's the language that they're communicated in, right? When a new album drops, you ever seen an album drop on the Taxi King? I haven't, <laughs> no, right? I haven't like, <laughs> that's not how that world operates. So yeah. it's like, go speak the language that that person wants to be seen. And, and then I think accessibility is a whole other question, right? right. Which is like, I had uh, the director choreographer, well, he's a writer too, he does everything. Warren Adams said to me not long ago, we were just talking about theater in the post George Floyd world and what we need to do and what, and he said to me, like, we were, we were talking about hiring people. He runs a, a, along with T. Oliver Reed, an incredible organization called the Broadway Advocacy Coalition. And they're specifically focused on fellowships to create new members of our community. So that basically like asking people like me to pay a living wage to someone from the black community to learn to be a development executive or to learn to be a general manager or whatever it is. And they basically raise the money to basically have, support half the cost of these fellowships and they're building the next generation of Broadway wow. to look like our city really looks, not to look like our boardrooms look. Right. And so they're doing incredible stuff. And Warren is really a, a, a great uh, friend and collaborator when it comes to like blunt, honest conversation about not like, like, let's not be idealists. Like, what can we do? What can we do to help fix things? I'm lucky to have a lot of friends that, that I'm surrounded by that challenge me and, and guide my thinking. And he said, so we were talking about pipeline, talking about employment. And I said, like, yeah, you know, we need to find a way. It's not just go applying or putting out a job posting that where you make it clear that you want people of any shape, size, color, age, doesn't matter. Like literally, if you're if you could be good at the job, please apply. 
then you have to take that job description and get it in front of those actual people. Because put, just putting it on Playbill, no disrespect to Playbill, like right. Playbill's, Playbill's not being read by socioeconomically underprivileged people in the outer boroughs. It's just not. Right. So like now you have to find a way to get it in front of them. Then you have to find a way to intervene in the educational program in those areas so they even know that those jobs or skill sets are viable, available to them, and, and interesting to them. Yeah. Like there's this whole cycle of change. And I'd like, so I go off on this tangent about like, we've got to drill back all the way to the beginning of the process. And that's a 10 year plan. And we got to be, and he said, he paused after I was done. And he said, and you also have to accept that theater is a white space. And I was like, what does that mean? And he said, like, even if you meet all of those things, you had a school program that taught you this, you had a, you know, a, a job posting put in front of you in your, in your local area that you had access to, you were truly invited to apply and now you've been offered the job. Mm -hmm. That person still has to walk into a space that is controlled and created predominantly by white people every day. They are signing up to permanently be other Whereas they could take a job somewhere where they just are. Right. So like we, that really made me think that accessibility is not, it's almost the wrong term because it's very easy for me to create programs about access, right? I can say anybody making less than $50,000 can come to my show for 10 bucks. Great. I just, I just created access. But if I can't create welcoming and comfort, if I can't, it doesn't matter because no one will take the access. Right. And so we have so much work to do when it comes to that in, in order to like really, so I was talking about it from an audience standpoint, which is like speak to people in their own language. Yeah. It's not just that. You also have to create an environment that truly, not performatively, welcomes everyone and wraps its arms around everyone. And that's a very big job. Yeah, that is. That is. And that's it's absolutely incredible that you know, that you in your position are consciously paying attention to that. And that's because, yeah, there's right. There's access. And then there's actually a, a structural shift that is almost like, you know, putting in new beams, <laughs> so to speak, as opposed to just being like, Hey, you can come up to the 10th floor when you want to. It's a whole, you got to change the way the building is built. And I, you, I, I appreciate you know, like the, the, the personal story that I use that, that like I used to reflect on this a lot is that my best friend growing up was black. I would sleep over at her house all the time. And one time I slept over on a Saturday or the, and the only reason I was allowed to sleep over on Saturday is if I agreed to go to church on Sunday. Hmm. Right. That was what, that was what her parents made me do. Yeah. And, and I didn't go to church at all, much less a Baptist church where I was going to be at probably 13 years old, the only white face in the room. Right. right. Well, I could have, I had access. No. It's not like the Baptist church. I mean, I had, didn't, I didn't know it existed. I, I didn't know whether I did or didn't want to go, but I could have walked into that church any day. Nobody would have rejected me, right? But it wasn't until when I was in there and I did have to deal with clearly being the other, right? It wasn't until everyone there, instead of being like, why are you here? Was like, we are so glad you're here that it became a space that felt like my space. Mm -hmm. And I think so often we're like, the door's open. Or, or accessibility to us worse, you know, thank God for, for people like, you know, Tony Israel and this business that do community building and, and, and outreach. And now she's running with a, a bunch of her peers, a really incredible producing group. But like, I'm sorry, I just gotta be blunt. A lot of times when we say we're doing accessibility programs, it means 
hey, community other than mine, I'd like your ticket money. That's a totally different thing than I want you to get out of this experience something comparable to what I get out of this experience. They're just differently motivated. And that's kind of why, to me, a smart economic model around a show, that's really important. Because frankly, that's what keeps a show running and that's what keeps more people seeing a show. Yeah. But doing a show to try to make money makes no sense because you start to lose the purpose. And you know, I say to people all the time that, that effectively, like, let me be blunt, I've been very lucky, very few people get to make a living doing this full time. Fewer people get to do this and have had a lot of economic success. I know exactly how fortunate I am. Hmm. That being said, if you're choosing to be in the theater for your living, it is a service position. Yes, I like money. But if you can survive doing what I do for a living, I could make so much more money doing way less stressful things. Going, you know, go, go work for a traditional startup company. And you know, when you exit one of the, you get a great big hit musical, maybe you make $5 million over three years. Right. You exit a startup if you know how to build teams and bring products to market, which is just what I do, just in the arts. Right. You might be making many hundreds of millions of dollars. You, you know, there's, it's just, so if you're already deciding yeah. to not optimize your economic success, yeah. just by coming to this industry, you are not, you will make less at a Broadway advertising agency than you would at a regular advertising agency. Mm -hmm. But if you care about advertising, Dear Evan Hansen, instead of Coke, if that matters to you, you're choosing to be in service of what we do, in service of making theater. Right. And so for me, it's very easy to say, if it's a service job, I can't ever come first. Mm -hmm. The audience has to come first, or the performers have to come first, or the creatives have to come first. Because the second that I start, and by the way, you mess it up all the time. You like, you know, you slip back into your habits or your, or your tendencies or whatnot. Sure. But for me, every time I realize something is, is about me, I know that I'm missing opportunity. Yeah. Ironically, when it's not about you, it tends to work better and then that benefits you. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's a service job and it's a service job. Oh, it really, it really is. I, this, you have given such great service to the listeners of this show with your, your, your generous generosity in answers. I have uh, two following questions for you before we wrap it up here today. Um, but this is, this is such a fantastic question before I ask them though, I do want to address what's behind you on this wall, just to give everyone a visual uh -huh. of the way in which you see the day to days here. Yeah. So, um, you can, you can only see one of them and they drive my staff crazy because I'm highly disorganized in reality. I'm great at ideas. I'm mm -hmm. great at team building. Um, but you know, I have 96 projects in the pipeline right now, just in theater, um, not to mention other companies, not to mention film. And, and I not only have to have an incredible staff, I have to have something or many things that externally organize me. Because if I don't have that, like the chaos of my brain, just nothing gets done or nothing gets done right. So behind me is the New York board. It's all of the theaters in New York. It's all of their capacities. And then it's what shows currently in them and when it's going to end. So basically what that... Listen, real estate is constrained in our business. Yeah. So you can have 10 great shows. Unless you can get 10 great theaters, you're in trouble. Also, because real estate is constrained, you know, there's 80-ish theaters between New York and London. London's a little harder to find because 
New York, there's Broadway and off-Broadway. London, there's West End, but you can be in a non-West End theater and still be SALT qualified, which is the Olivia Awards, the version of Artoni. Right. So London's a little bit more of a gray zone, but there's only 80-ish some theaters. So if you don't know what's coming available, when, if you're not way ahead of everybody else, then your shows are always subject to taking whatever they can get. Right. I will use Hadestown as an example of this. People thought we were absolutely nuts. Um, but all four of us that worked on Hadestown, we turned down two theaters before we got the curve. Most people, when you say you turned down a theater for your new Broadway musical that got fair to middling reviews out of town, would be like, are you a lunatic? But we knew what we had. We knew what work had been done since the world had last seen the show. We knew how much we believed in it. And we really believed that we needed a small, intimate space. We also believed that we needed the views from our, call them the cheap seat, our third tier. We knew we didn't need two tiers because we wouldn't be able to create accessibility pricing mm -hmm. to the very demographic we knew we needed the most. Right. We couldn't be in a theater where you felt like you were in nosebleeds. You had to feel like you were a part of the show. Right. And we almost needed the physical space of the theater to wrap its arms around the production. Yeah. And we got two beautiful offers from theater owners that were very passionate about the show that just weren't right for the show. Hmm. So like that board behind me, I look at every single day, one for New York, one for London, because I'm thinking about all of my projects, where they need to land, what home is right for them and how I can be the first person that is that understands when that's going to happen. So the team can be ready. So I'm talking to the right theater owners. So I also, so it keeps me honest. So I don't just start getting desperate and feeling like I should take whatever's there. Right. And literally as anal retentive as this makes me sound every, every part of my life is organized like that. <laughs> what is the, what are these four columns? Is this fiscal quarters? No, these so these are seasons. So spring and fall. Spring. So got it. So the columns are theater name, right? Theater occupancy, yep. or at least current theater occupancy. Like I just changed the occupancy for Circle in the Square to match what our seating is going to be for Chicken and Biscuit. Got it. And then it's fall of twenty one, spring of twenty two, fall of twenty two, spring of twenty three. Amazing. Thank you for explaining that. I uh, I know we've talked about so much about life and you know theater and producing. But going back to the, the wider ranging question in life, what is most important to you? Huh. Wow. Way to go with the softballs. <laughs> Sorry about um, that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I mean, actually know the answer to this. I'm just trying to articulate it in the best way possible. I think it's not even what's most important to me. It's really only the thing that's important to me in terms of a life standpoint, sure. which is leaving this place and its inhabitants, this place, planet Earth, better off for me having been here. Mm. And the only way I know how to do that personally is by changing people through story. Mm. And the only way that I know how to do that is supporting people I love and admire. That is my skill set. At the end of the day, it is supporting people who are talented, who I love and admire. And by the way, that's true in my personal life, right? It might be a brilliant friend that I take the evening out to remind them that they're, that they're worth it, that what they're doing is, it doesn't have to be arts oriented at all. 
But like the only way I know in to leaving this planet better off is just by being in service to people who are in service of story. I love that. That's such a great answer. And it's so true. Uh, if we can all leave the place better than we found it. <laughs> yeah. We all have that goal. It one gets just future. better every day instead of one step worse. Oh goodness. Um, metaphorically speaking, if you could put a word or a phrase on a billboard for millions of people to see, does anything come to mind? Uh, I would probably say push yourself to the extremes, but be kind to yourself. To the extremes, but be kind to yourself. Like, yeah. If you're if you're not commonly out of your comfort zone, yeah, you're just not going to find your full potential. That's so true. But when you're com- when you're constantly out of your comfort zone, you're also going to screw it up a lot. And so, if you don't learn to be truthful but kind to yourself. Mm. You just quit. I mean, my I, my favorite thing that anyone has literally ever said to me, about me uh, was somebody at a cocktail party asked my husband, like, why do you think he's good at what he does? And my husband's answer was, he's smart enough to know how to make any horse let him ride them. He can convince any horse to be ridden. He's also dumb enough that he doesn't realize he shouldn't keep getting back on. <laughs> and I and I think it's like total like it's totally accurate, right? Which is it's like. What I do is ridiculous. What we do has like a 75% failure rate. Yep. And you put like five to 10 years of your life into something that if it fails, which it's likely to do, it's, it's majority likely to fail. When it fails, it fails like in a spectacular, public, fast and ugly way. <laughs> you have to be a little bit crazy and stupid to keep doing it over and over again. Amen to and that. like to me though, but that's where the beauty is, right? Because if I knew how something was going to turn out, where's the fun in that? Right. Right? Yeah. Where's the fun in that? I love it. I love it. I love this conversation again. And I want to thank you publicly here. Thank you for being so generous with your responses. There is so many takeaways from this conversation that I've benefited from. And I know people who listen will benefit. So I really appreciate it. Before we wrap up though, is there anything else you want to add upcoming things to look towards, um, asks, call to actions, anything like that? Yeah. I mean, listen, it's, it's definitely a thing that we're doing with chicken and biscuits, but we're not certainly not the only people doing it. You know, what I would say to members of the audience, and I don't care, by the way, I don't care if you're buying from TDF or TKTS or waiting for a discount if shows happen to offer them. But like, we just went through a real tough moment. The isolation of the pandemic, you know, the the political partisanship and, and the sort of vitriol and, you know, the, the binary nature, because nothing's really black or white, everything's gray. But like, we put ourselves in this weird, you know, binary box where if I don't agree with you, you're the enemy. Right. And then on top of it, to go through all of the post-George Floyd social justice self-searching that we're going through as a culture and really facing the, the truths of, of what our nation was founded on and how pervasive that reality still is in everyday people's lives. Yeah. There is a moment right now where people are making space for new voices. Yeah. If we don't support, it, it is a business. Yeah. If we don't put our money where our hearts and our mouths are, we will go right back to the way things were. So I would say, as an audience member, I'm about to say something totally crazy. If you have a choice between seeing a show I've lead produce, Little Shop of Horrors or Hadestown, 
that's selling well, that everybody wants to see, that's making me a lot of money, or you have a choice to go take a risk on thoughts of a colored man, which no, none of us know yet how that will turn out because it hasn't existed yet in this format. Right. Go to B, because B might not be there next month, next year, year after that, if you don't support it. Mm-hmm. And A will be. Right. So put put your money and put your put your heart, you know, where it belongs. Yeah. Um, and that is on making room for new voices and making room for new opinions and seats at the table in a way that we just weren't facing before this. And I think if there's if there's going to be a silver lining to the pandemic, right? Unfortunately, problems don't get solved until people get real angry. Right. And and, and I say real angry because I mean. If you want to change something big, we saw this with the AIDS epidemic, right? I mean, it's like, I don't, when I now think about the tone that ACT UP had, it's a painful tone, this sort of, this sort of nonstop relentless anger. It's also why change was made. It's also why, you know, the cocktail, the the drugs that have now made, you know, HIV something that is a thing people live with instead of a thing people die from to take AIDS, right? is because of all the righteous indignation and all of the fury and anger and rage. And if there's a thing the pandemic did, honestly, it gave people the free time to stay angry enough. Mm-hmm. And that pervasive righteous anger is why we're starting to see the seeds of change. But unfortunately, America is a capitalist culture. And that means if we don't now put our money on that change, it will just change back. Right. And so if we want this to be a movement and not a moment, we better back it up and we better back it up with our own cash. Yeah. Well, yeah, because we've been so persistent to this point. And now that life's but, returning to normal, keep the persistence going and switch how you are persistent with this, you know, yep. see the new stuff. Hunter, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for giving your time to the show and just speaking on all these fantastic topics. Man, it's been great to be here. Uh, you know, there's nothing. I, the only thing I like more than talking about theater is making theater. So this is pretty darn good. I'm pretty happy to be here. Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, I appreciate you. I can't wait to see all of these shows to reopen on Broadway. It's an exciting time, baby. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Hunter Arnold. You've been listening to Entertainment X, the podcast. You can follow Entertainment X on Instagram at underscore Entertainment X underscore. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join Clay next week for another curiosity conversation on Entertainment X. Thank you for listening. <laughs>